Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, um, we're, we're coming to a, a passage that actually has a certain weight and, and heaviness to it. And we, we ask that you will um, you'll give us the, the, the gift of being able to explore it rightly. We ask on the one hand that you would grant us the ability to, I suppose, feel the weightiness that is appropriate. But that's not our aim. We trust that that's not your aim. We want to meet you. We want to know you. Um, we, we, when we pray, we, we talk to you because we believe that you're there and that you hear and that you intervene and that you work in our lives. And so boldly, we ask that you'll do that even right now. And so Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. And we ask that you'd help us hear you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, uh, have a seat, and um, please turn in your service sheets back to page 9 and 10. Uh, that's a reading from Isaiah, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Um, as you can see, there's, there's a, a few indicators um, that it's a little bit different today. So it's, it's the first Sunday of Advent, as Megan uh, and uh, Caleb uh, explained to you all, and I tried to... Um, to uh, show forth um, over there uh, with, the, uh, with the Advent right wreath spiral thingy wig. But anyways, um, the, um, so today is the, the first Sunday in Advent. In Advent, it's the fourth Sundays that lead up to Christmas, and the point is that this is a time of year where we're getting ready for Christmas. Now, everybody's getting ready for Christmas, but the, the point of Advent is not just to get ready for Christmas, you know, the stuff that you're gonna, we're all going to do and buy stuff. The point of Advent is to get ready for Christmas spiritually. Now, why do we need to get ready for Christmas spiritually? And, uh, and, and here's the answer to that. There's at least two uh, truths that, that the Bible teaches that you've got to be clear on in order for any of us to really adequately engage with the reality of Christmas. The first thing that you've got to understand if you're going to really engage Christmas properly is, uh, is this. Um, the Bible teaches that we really need intervention. We need, every one of us, human beings, and all of us together, um, there's something going on in us that is uh, such a big deal that we need, actually, we can't fix it ourselves, we need God to intervene in our lives in a pretty significant way. That's the first thing we have to understand. The second thing uh, that the Bible claims that, that kind of creates a context for Christmas is that God likes to intervene. That God has promised to intervene. Now, the reason those are two, are two uh, truths are really important is because when those become vivid for us, then when we come to Christmas and we see Jesus in the manger, it, it won't just be sweet little baby Jesus there. It'll be, that's my rescue. That's God intervening in my life. And it takes on a whole new reality and a whole new significance. And Advent is meant to make those two truths vivid for us. And that's why we're looking at Isaiah. Because here's the thing. Here's, here's uh, on page 9 and 10. This uh, is a prayer of Israel. Israel, this is several hundred years before Jesus comes. And Israel is in the midst of a catastrophe. 
And in the midst of their catastrophe, they cry out to God in prayer. And what we're going to find out is that in the midst of this absolutely wretched catastrophe, there's a gift. There's a very important gift. In the midst of their absolutely wretched catastrophe, that's when they finally see, in a way that they hadn't seen before, their need and God's intervention. And what I want us to see today is that here in this passage and in Advent, we need to become a people who see God clearly from the vantage point of our weakness, from the vantage point of our need, not our strength, but our need. And when that becomes clear, then Advent and Christmas and the whole of the Christian life will be filled with wonderful, wonderful gifts. So that's where we need to go. And um, uh, over the next few minutes, I want you to imagine three things, three images. The first image is of a beautiful building, a gorgeous, monumental building that has been destroyed, that's been torn down, that's been burnt, and that all that's left is rubble. That's the first image. The second image is in the middle of that rubble, you see a group of people praying. Not nice, sweet little liturgical prayers, but crying out in a really guttural kind of way. And then the third image is right in the middle of all that rubble and the ugliness, right in the middle of it, there's an artist who's got clay, and the artist is shaping something beautiful. You can't see it yet, but there's something beautiful happening right in the middle of all the ugly. Okay? All right, let's go through those three images. First of all, the rubble. Okay, in your mind, the scene opens, and what you're looking at is, an, is a once beautiful city that has, that has just been torn down, that's been made rubble. Look at verse 10. Uh, verse 10 is on uh, page 10. Uh, this is Israel speaking to God, and they say this, Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem has become a desolation. And our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Okay, the word house there in verse 11 is not talking about a residence. It's talking about the, uh, the temple, the temple of Israel. And the thing that you have to understand with the temple is that the temple was not just a meeting place. This building that we're in is great. It's a meeting place. Um, that's its primary purpose. But, but the temple was not primarily or exclusively just a meeting place. It was a symbol of something very, very important for Israel. It was a symbol of Israel's, and this is going to be a weird way to put it, but I don't have a better way to put it, Israel's family relationship and bond with God. So um, I have a wedding ring here. Um, my wedding ring is very, very important to me. It is important to me not primarily because it's made of gold. It is important to me because of what it means. Because it means that 18 years ago, yes, 18 years ago, 18 years ago, uh, Amber, my wife, promised to, to join her life to mine um, for good or ill. <laughs> um, and, and I promised to join my life with her 
with all the joys and the challenges and all of it that, that, that comes with that. And so it's filled with significance. Now, that's what the temple meant for Israel. Because it, it, it hearkened back to their big story. So hundreds of years before, they had been slaves in Egypt, and they didn't really know God well at all, and they weren't really looking for God to intervene in their lives, but God did. And God broke in on uh, their lives as slaves in Egypt, brought them out of Egypt, and almost immediately, God and Israel enter into this, we call it a covenant, but you could think of it as a family relationship. Sometimes it's described as a marriage between Israel and God. Sometimes it's described more like an adoption. And the temple was a kind of a sign of that because so that when Israel could look at this beautiful temple, they could see we belong to God. God belongs to us. And we're so closely bound together. This is in the chapter before this in Isaiah. We're so closely bound together that when we suffer, God suffers. So the temple told them who they were it was their identity. It was their security. If it's there, everything's going to be fine. It was what told them that they were free. But now, they're not looking at the beautiful temple. They're looking at rubble. And it's because um, there was a military invasion that, that destroyed it all. But, um, but it was more than a military invasion, and Israel knew it. You can see it in the prayer. They knew that the thing had been rubbled because their family relationship with God had been rubbled. They had cheated on God, is the way it's described. They had cheated on him. It was like spiritual adultery. The idea is they were married to God, but then at some point, they started looking at God and going, eh, we could do better. And they tried. And the result was that uh, everything fell apart. And so here, in the midst of just the, the absolute debacle of their relationship with God, but also of their national life, all of a sudden they see their, their sin. They see that their, uh, that their actions, that they, they realize that their sin is not just, um, you know, just mildly fun things that are a bit naughty. Um, but no, their sin is actually, they've betrayed God and everything's fallen down. And in verse 6, look at verse 6, page 9, they say, we have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the best things we've done are just hip hypocrisy. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away, and there's no one who calls upon your name. There's no one who rouses himself to take hold of you, God, for, we have, for you have hidden our, your face from us, and you've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And they say, we're, uh, we're gripped by our sins, by our failure, by our record of wrongdoing. Now, Jim, this is so encouraging, isn't it? Well, here's what I want you to see, because there's something very, very important here. Israel is in the midst of horrendous pain. No denying that. But whatever else they might be at this moment, the one thing that they're not at this moment is hypocrite. All of a sudden, you know, their temple is ruined, their guilt is public, they're not denying it anymore, and they're in a very real way, real, for almost the first time. They're real. They're not in fantasy land anymore. They were in fantasy land. 
they, they were doing their religious these sort of things, but their hearts were far from God. They were in fantasy land, but now they're not. All of a sudden, it's real. It's painful, but it's real. And one of the things, friends, most of us here, let's think about us, most of us here, tell me if you think this is true, will spend an enormous amount of our lives desperately trying to avoid this kind of experience, desperately trying to avoid the rubble of our lives, desperately trying to avoid experiencing the weakness that's maybe just underneath the surface. And the frightening unintended consequence of that, that, that all of us naturally do, the unintended consequence is that we're, as we try to stay strong and in control and keep our sin and our failure and our shame and our, all of the bad stuff, keep it at bay, the danger is that we end up living in fantasy land. Not being real to the people around us, but not even being real to ourselves and certainly not being real with God. And in those sorts of situations, when the whole thing crumbles, like it does here for Israel, when the whole thing crumbles, it's the scariest thing possible. There's nothing worse. There's, there's nothing scarier. But it can also be the first time that you actually become real. So I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking about Emmanuel Church. And one of the things that frightens me, I don't think we're here, but it would frighten me if we would, is that we would become a church that's lovely and fantasy. Would that we were not very respectable, but real. Scary as that is. All right, so that's the first image. Um, uh, uh, the ruins, the rubble. But it leads Israel to reality, authenticity. It's all out there. But then the second image is a group of people in the middle kneeling in prayer. Look at verse 1. They say, again, uh, this is a groaning, guttural kind of prayer. It's not a sweet, nice little liturgical prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Skip to verse 3. Like when you did awesome things that we did not look for. Now, here's the beginning of the gift, okay? I know it's been really rough. Here's the beginning of the gift. The beginning of the gift is that Israel sees God's goodness from the vantage point of their weakness. And that's huge because all through the Old Testament, Israel really struggled to see God's goodness. Even when God uh, rescued them and brought them out of, uh, of Egypt, within like two weeks, they're like, yeah, I'm not sure he's that great. Let's worship a golden calf. But now, it's starting to change because they're weak. And they see God's goodness far more clearly than they've ever seen before. Now, it's painful because by looking at God's goodness, they've seen the thing that they've betrayed and the thing that they've cheated on. But it's a gift, because don't miss the gift in the midst of the rubble. Because when they're stripped of everything else to trust in, all of a sudden they're captivated by the one thing they've got left, and that is God. And they see his beauty for, in a way, the first time. And how do we know that they see his beauty? They pray. They pray, and the prayer, follow me here, the prayer is a sign that God is beginning to allure them to himself again, attract them, draw them. And so they, they cry out in the midst of the rubble, God, 
you have done wonderful things. We've heard about it. You saved us out of Egypt, and we weren't even looking for you. We weren't expecting it. And you are so much better than any other god. All the rest of them, they fail. They promise a lot, but they don't deliver. You're the opposite. You promise more, and you deliver more than we anticipate. And God, we're standing here in the midst of our rubble that is all self-inflicted, and we dare not ask you for a gift. And on the other hand, we dare not ask you for a gift. Will you, can you maybe save us again? Emmanuel, everything in us naturally will drive us to cling as individuals in a congregation uh, to the fantasy of our strength. Don't you want to be in control? Don't you want to be okay? And therefore, we hide the rubble of our lives but the thing is, when I am strong in myself, I am almost always blind to the goodness of God. And on the other hand, when I am weak in myself, that's, those are the times where I see God's alluring love. And that's why when we pray, God's best gift to us is not just to fix the bad stuff in our lives. God's best gift to us always is when he shows us his goodness in the midst of our rubble. And if you're sitting there going, well, I don't see an answer. I don't see God's answer in this reading. Did God answer? Well, yeah. Y you know how he answered? Advent. You know what Advent means? coming. Will you rend the heavens and come? And God says yes. And you know how he rent the heavens? He rent the heavens when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's not just your sweet little baby Jesus, okay? It was rending the heavens and coming down. And later on, Jesus, do you realize this? Jesus actually called himself the temple. Tear this temple down three days, I'll rise it up. What was he talking about? He was talking about his own body. Jesus says, I'm the real temple. And just like the old temple, Jesus' body was rubbled by Israel's sin and Rome's sin. But the difference is that Jesus is, Jesus is the temple that was remade. Three days later, he rose again. And therefore, when you look at Jesus Christ, you see the sign of God's family union with us that can never be torn apart, that is secure and sure and certain. And that's precisely why it's safe for us to bring our worst to Jesus Christ. Not our best, but our worst. There's a story in the, in the New Testament um, about two guys that go into the temple to pray. It kind of sounds like a joke, but it's not. Um, Two, two, two guys go into the temple to pray. Uh, one's a Pharisee, and he, he says, hey, God, check it out. I'm, I'm better than average. Bet, definitely better than this guy. And the, the guy standing next to him is a tax collector, very badly behaved. And, and he doesn't bring God his best. He brings his worst. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the, the well-behaved guy is a fake, and the badly behaved guy is the real thing. Why? Because he brought his rubble. And he could see God and his goodness in the midst of his weakness and his brokenness. First image, the rubble. That's where we get real. 
Second image, praying in the midst of our rubble, is where we see God and his goodness, and he allures us to himself again with Jesus Christ. And the last image is right in the middle of it all, there's an artist who's uh, working with clay. Maybe it's spinning. And he's working with clay, and, and something beautiful is coming, but you can't see it yet. And what that means is that Jesus doesn't intend to leave us in the rubble. He doesn't. He doesn't leave us anywhere. He moves us on. Look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay, you are the potter, and we are the work of your hands. See, Israel says in the midst of it, we're clay, that's all we are now. <laughs> we're clay, but we're clay in your hands. Will you remake us? And Jesus gives us an absolutely unqualified yes. He will. In fact, this image is picked up. Some of you know uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul says, for we are God's workmanship or the work of his artistry, recreated in Christ to do good works. And that's the last reason we give God our rubble, because um, we see God's goodness from the vantage point of our weakness, but then we see that Jesus comes and he picks up the rubble, he picks up the pieces, and in a remarkable way, somehow, I don't know, it doesn't, he turns it into clay, and he begins to shape it, and make it, and he fashions us into his own piece of art, and we resemble him. And later on in the New Testament, all of a sudden it shifts from Jesus being the temple to the people who belong to Jesus being the temple. And Jesus says, you now share in what I have. You are being shaped into this beautiful piece of art. And friends, that's the Christian life. And it's fundamentally uncomfortable. So if you want comfort, well, but if you want deeper comfort, then yes, please, by all means, come. And it's scary because a lot of us, I mean, we're, we're, we've just below the surface, you know, we've got rubble. <laughs> and, and we cover it up with stuff, you know, I don't know, we cover it up with lovely robes, I don't know. And Jesus, Jesus says, all right, stop that fantasy land stuff and come to me. Your need is deeper than you realize. But Jesus' desire to intervene in your life is far greater than you can imagine. So come with your rubble this Advent and ask God to intervene in a more deep way than you ever have before. And he'll meet you there. Amen? Amen. Amen.